Where do you want me? What should I do with my life? With whom should I do it? These are the questions that either, for a number of us, keep us awake at night, pleading with God, or should keep us awake, for some of us, but instead remains in the back of our minds, never quite being addressed until that 11th hour decision is absolutely necessary. Consider how humanity, though, has historically answered these questions. In biblical times, you had the Urim and Thummim. I'm not even going to seek to explain that. It's basically two stones and a, and a breastplate. Sometimes God used it to show his will. We'll talk about that another time. We have the divining rod. Right? Where to be. Especially helpful for God to help you find gold. <laughs> you have the fortune cookie. Ever popular. You have the Ouija board. And finally last, or at least last on my list, Miss Cleo. <laughs> That's right. Miss Cleo who has haunted many hours of television watching for me. I think she's uh, I think she's actually got arrested. Yeah, probably for fraud <laughs> in her <laughs> attempts to be a fortune teller slash psychic. These options at worst demonic, spiritually dangerous, at best faulty. You know, even Christians who in making such decisions have used the simple logic, well God wouldn't want me to do something or to be somewhere I wouldn't want. Right? Let me lovingly say with a gentle touch of lilac and a sweet hint of honeysuckle, you're wrong. I mean, there's a good chance you probably haven't read your Bible or spoken to people who love Jesus in maybe two or three years. To think that God wouldn't call us to do something we don't want to do or be somewhere we wouldn't want to be. He often calls us to do things which we're not comfortable, to places that we wouldn't necessarily choose on the map, and with people that we wouldn't necessarily prioritize on our own. As Christians, we believe that God intervenes and speaks into our lives. And since we claim that he's our God, King, numero uno, he gets first dibs, right, in calling us to a job, to a place, to a collection of people. And the means by which he reveals his call are through circumstances, right? Sometimes he will open a door, sometimes shut doors, through Prayer, just by faith as you pray, God helps you discern that calling through his church, through other people speaking into your life. But one means trumps them all, because it's already written in ink and translated for us into English, right? God's word. Be for sure, we know it's from God, will. And we have a, quite a bit of wisdom in God's word when it comes to this all-important topic regarding calling, especially in places like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We also have a number of examples where God calls people, real people, to different jobs, to different places, and to different peoples. Sometimes God calls people in the Bible audibly. He called a man named Abram to pack up and leave his hometown of Ur without even telling him where he was going. 
He asked Isaiah and Jeremiah to speak to people whom God says won't listen. He tells them they're not going to listen, but you're called to speak to them. He tells the Apostle Paul to go and live among and serve people whom he spent, spent the majority of his life despising. So he calls through his voice, but he also calls through circumstances. Consider uh, Joseph, who interprets dreams in high places and becomes second in command over all of Egypt, not because he heard God's voice and responded out of obedience, but his brothers didn't like his clothing, so he sold him into slavery. Circumstances. Think about all the great kings of the Bible, right? Centuries of kings, many righteous and God-fearing like a Josiah or a, or a Hezekiah who are called by God, how? Just by being born, right? To the right family. Led them to a calling to sort of shepherd and govern a nation. So we have wisdom when considering calling. We have real historical, historical examples of calling. But we have no prescriptive teaching or no definitive direction on this matter except one place. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn with me there this morning if you would. Let me just share with you uh, what my prayer has been this week, that we would listen and respond to what the Word of God says about calling, not what we previously assumed it didn't say. You know what I mean by that? For, for the vast majority of us, right, we're, there are things in God's Word we just haven't read. That's okay, we just haven't read them yet. Or it was, what we read was sort of in a bland, obtuse, maybe hard to understand part of the Bible, which we, we just kind of glossed over right, to get to the, the next part that applied. But now if we read, which we're going to read this morning, now if we read and we listen to someone explain it, and it hits us, it challenges what we previously assumed and never spoke about. And this, I think, is one of those areas, friends. And it's a real test, isn't it? This kind of scripture, this kind of new learning is a real test for us. A test for what role the Bible really plays in our life. What do we really think about it? Is it supposed to change us? Is it supposed to guide us? Is it supposed to have priorities even over everything we planned and everything we feel? So let's read 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 17. We're going to go through verse 24. Only let each person lead the, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. What is anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a, as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each one was called, 
There, let him remain with God. This is God's word. Now, we immediately need to deal with a distinction. You can kind of sense Paul is trying to balance here between primary and secondary calling. I'll explain what I mean by this. When the New Testament speaks of calling, it almost exclusively does so in terms of God calling people into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. So I know a lot of us are thinking this morning, in fact, I, I, I got a couple emails recently about, man, I'm thinking about this new year, and it's going to be a year of decisions, of, of calling, where is God calling us? But the first thing God calls you to is a relationship to himself through Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few examples of this. 1 Peter 2.9 where Peter concludes a, long, a little long passage by, by talking about God and saying that it's he who called you out of darkness, right, out of one spiritual state, and into his marvelous light, into fellowship with him. We have uh, Romans 1, both verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, uh, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. All, to all those in Rome, this is who he's writing, who are loved by God and called to be his saints. All right, into fellowship, not only with God, but with others. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And finally, one more, 1 Corinthians 1.2, Paul says, basically, I am writing to those sanctified who are made holy because of Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you are called be part of this great thing called the church and the local expression therein. Rarely does the New Testament speak of what we're going to call secondary calling. Right? With questions of location, of vocation. And I had nothing else to rhyme with this. People groups. I tried. Location, vocation. I thought of nation. But that's, I don't know. That got weird. So... But location, vocation, people groups doesn't really talk much about that. Certainly, it doesn't give specific guidance, specific prescriptive guidance on these questions, except for here. And this little aside from Paul. In fact, the two different uses of this calling are summed up, if you look here in verse 20. Look at that with me just real quick. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, right? So called here clearly refers to the saving calling to God in Jesus Christ. But condition... The condition in which he was called refers to the idea of where he was, what he was doing, and whom he was with. So you have this idea, primary, secondary calling together in this passage. What's so great about having that here is, is whereas we previously may have objected, well, you know, God's will, God's will, his call, so mysterious, unknowable, I'll just follow my gut and make my own plans. While we say that, we see here that the Apostle Paul gives us a starting line, right, a baseline on this question. In fact, we could summarize this sort of the sermon in a nutshell, if you will, this morning is this. When it comes to calling, the calling in the way we're talking about it, secondary calling, when it comes to calling, the biblical God speaking to you default is to remain. Remain where you are, with what you're doing, and who you're doing it with. And that's going to hit some of us like a bombshell this morning. 
especially in, in a world so transient as ours, and a place so transient as Cayman. Now, I want to walk us through this statement here, okay? First of all, this idea of default. Now, I know when you hear, like, this is God's default calling for you. That, that excites us, right? Not at all. I mean, you, you know, immediately we balk at this idea, at least in our inner being, right? We, we, we feel like, well, oh, because it's default, it doesn't really count because it's not uniquely just for me. Right? Do you feel that sometimes? When you, like, you want the snowflake will of God for you. <laughs> Unique, individualized, all of that. But this is God speaking to you. This is God speaking to you. To me. To all of us. In fact, there's an emphasis here on us. I was reading uh, up on some history lately, and historian Mark Knoll made this comment about a significant shift among a major population of people when it came to Jesus. And he said, up to 17, the 1700s, or sorry, uh, up through the early 1700s, British Protestant Christians preached on God's plan for the church, for the whole church. But from the mid-1700s, however, evangelicals emphasized God's plan for the individual. And he goes on to conclude, in his estimation, the pendulum has swung too far. We used to talk about God's plan for the church, now we just talk about God's plan for the individual. Why has the pendulum swung too far? Because of what we read up there earlier. Jesus hasn't just called you to himself, but us to himself. And us to one another then, because Jesus Christ, for those who trusted him, lives in all of us. Isn't that great? Because Jesus has chosen to be in people through the Holy Spirit, along to one another. When Paul says you in the New Testament, it's usually a y'all. It's usually a y'all. There's just no way to say that in English other than saying y'all. And people don't want to put that in the Bible. You know, there's no like plural version of you. You guys, use guys, I mean y'all. But that's what he's saying. In the Greek, that's a plural most often. And I think the Corinthians are a bit like us. Yeah, but Paul, but we're different. You know, I'm unique. So it's not surprising that Paul then responds in verse 17. What does he say? This is my rule for all the churches. Oh, I'm not, this is not just kind of saying this for you guys. This is for everyone. The best thing to do is stay where you are with what you're doing, with whom you're doing it, but now do it, live it, love them, because Jesus did it, lived it, and loved you. And so he's redeemed and he's sanctified where you are and what you do. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, sorry. Back up here. With this passage, there's some confusing things. I want to talk about a couple differences between then and now that will help us uh, grapple with this passage and this idea of calling. For some of you, you read this passage and, and you may have responded to God's primary call to trust your life to Jesus prior to uh, your current condition. All right, where you live, where you currently live, with whom you currently relate, and where you currently reside. Because right, Paul says, when you were called, stay where you are, but you're like, well, I was called a long time ago. I have a different job now. I live in a different place. I live with different people and this sort of thing. Now, after reading this passage, you might even conclude, well, man, I read this, and I think maybe I made a mistake to change jobs, to, to move here, to, 
get different friends, this sort of thing. Maybe. Maybe not. But to tell you the truth, friends, it, it really doesn't matter. You are here now with these people in a, in a good church now doing what you do now. You, you can only apply this then now. So in terms of the past and, and, and whether or not you, you made a mistake, you can't apply this passage in the past. You can only apply it now. There's one more issue I want to get to also. The issue of where. First of all, the issue of where was, you don't see it much in this passage specifically because it was a non-option for the people to whom Paul writes compared to today's instant information and globalized travel. Right? This age of globalization, you can go anywhere, you can find out anything at a remarkable Remarkably efficient rate. So Paul doesn't address the issue of where because traveling more than 200 kilometers pretty much meant that you were planning on a permanent move. All right, first century Roman times. Like this was it. <laughs> I mean, we're moving for good. We're like, we're doing that. And even then, we might die on the way. I know it's only, we're only going 100 kilometers. We're going at a, you know, but there's a good chance. Like there's a 50% chance we'll die, you know. So these were permanent kinds of moves. Now, but the reasons for why we, ha- we move elsewhere, why we move elsewhere, aren't so different than this passage. Let me show you what I mean. Typically we move because of people or because of a job. And that's something Paul's going to address here. If you move for a place exclusively, well, you're probably already here, right? I mean, you're in Cayman. This is one of the places. Right, you're probably not going to move somewhere else now because it's beautiful and has great beaches and you can you know, dive whenever you want. Right? So you might as well remain. While the issues of circumcision okay, versus uh, all natural are not, are not an issue for you at this point, or, or slave versus free is a non-issue for you at this point, they get to the matters of who and what. And thus, they get to the matters of where if we're honest about why we move, why we change. So let's dig in and look at this further, won't we, all right? So let's start with the who example. The socio-religious national calling idea here in verses 18 through 19. Read these with me, if you would, these verses. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? <clears throat> Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, I know it's easy to get lost here. Like, oh my gosh, uh, it's a lot of long words and fault, you know, crazy logic. Let's walk through this a little bit. When God decided to make a nation for himself, all right, for his glory, a long, long time ago, he asked them to confirm that they were of this nation with an outward sign. It was like a badge saying, I am of this nation and that was, uh, outward sign was circumcision. It set them apart and validated this is who we are, the Jewish nation. But when Jesus gave the offer to put God in us for free, the Holy Spirit, the transformation began in us from the inside out. So what sets us apart now is an outward sign, but not the way we think of it. it it's an outward sign of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. 
because Jesus is changing us from the inside out. You don't, it starts on the inside. You don't need this outward, physical kind of sign. So no longer did you need an outward sign on your body. So on the one hand, what people were saying, that's what Paul's addressing, what people were saying was, well, then let's just get rid of it. Right? We don't want to be like our religion of the past, so let's just get rid of it since we're new people. So you could actually have a procedure called an epispasm. All right, that was taking place, in fact, Paul kind of uses the language here, epispasm, that would actually reverse uh, the physical appearance of circumcision. All right? I actually have a visual for I'm just kidding. I'm not. That's, that was, I, would, I wouldn't even Google that. But uh, I'll just move on. I, 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 don't even, I shouldn't even dwell there that long. But, so you could actually have this reverse, but on the... <laughs> On the other hand, you have uh, many Jews who had also trusted Jesus, but they got nervous. That's what Paul's addressing also in verse 18. With with all these non-Jews trusting the God of the Bible, how will our ethical principles be safeguarded? How will our law be safeguarded? Surely we need some external standard to make sure people don't, you know, freeload on knowing God. Right? They don't fraud their way into the kingdom. Oh yeah, grace. So, all oh, we're saved by faith. We're going to freeload our way into this thing. So we need, you know, we need some external standard. So step one was get circumcised. That way we know you're really of God. Do so you see what's happening here? There's this divide. Some people are thinking, well, let's, let's get rid of what we were before on the outside. And then other people are saying, well, let's, let's make sure people show themselves to be this so they don't become imposters. So what happens? Not only is this a religious divide between people, it, it divides nations, right? Because you have these now uh, Jewish Christian separatists. Right? They're, they're, they're born into Judaism, but become Christians, but they separate themselves. They're a little bit different. So not only did it divide nation, though, it divided the lunch table. And we actually see this happen not only with, with just common folk like you and I, but with the highest leader in the early church. The guy who was supposed to lead this ragtag bunch. The Apostle Peter. We're going to look at Galatians 2, 11-4. Look at this with me, if you would, up on the screen. Paul says this. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong. He stood condemned, but it's a fancy way of saying he was wrong. For bes- before certain men uh, came James... All right, uh, James came along, and he, he was eating with the Gentiles. But basically, James came with these other guys, and Peter drew back. In other words, he got up from the lunch table where he was eating and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party, the people who were you know, trying to safeguard their religion. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Barnabas gets along, yeah, yeah, let's... let's, let's now that the old school, real religious people are here, I'm going to get up with you, Peter, and we're going to go sit with them. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like, like this, you don't, you don't follow the laws of the Jews anymore, but follow Jesus by faith, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What are you doing? Peter actually changes lunch tables under social pressure. He goes to eat with people, the people to know in the church. 
You know what I mean? I mean, they're probably, you guys probably have that notion in the church. Oh, there's some people to know in this church. It's, it's sort of the, it's, it, and relationally, it's sort of the perfect mixture of mature, cool Christians. Right? They're kind of cool, but they're also mature. We like that. Or they're just the people with whom you're most comfortable. And, and, and moving lunch tables, this sounds so juvenile, right? So seventh grade, so, so mean girls. Uh, like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to get up now, or are you going to later pants them and give them a swirly? You know, is this really going to happen in a church? But, in a sense, isn't that what happens when we relocate, we change based on people? Now, there are some folks for whom this is an exception. I want to make sure I say this. There's some of us who've fallen into something so deep, so addictive, so uh, deadly for their life that to not get away, to not break away, would be spiritual suicide. Or, in some cases, sadly, literal. But, but really, for, for most of us, that's the 1% of us here. That's the exception. But basically, when most of us move, what we are declaring is this. This lunch table has people that made me feel better about myself. Right? There's more history between us. They're more comfortable with the lifestyle I choose to lead. I'm going to go to that lunch table. And what Paul says to Peter and to us is, remain among the people with whom you're already relating. Because they are equally right with God through faith alone. They are equally right with God with faith alone. Or they equally need God. That makes sense? That's the who example. But Paul gives us another example. It's the what example. And then he gets a little more into vocational calling here in verse 21. Read that with me if you would. Were you a slave when called? So Paul gives us this other example. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Then he says kind of in parentheses, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now before I relate slavery to uh, one's choice of a job or life vocation, I got some explaining to do, right? You don't say that kind of thing lightly. In first century Roman Empire, there was a vast difference, or sorry, there wasn't a vast difference between a slave and your average Joe. There was no, it was not distinguishable uh, based on race, based on speech, based on clothing. Uh, They were not segregated from the rest of society. In a place like Corinth, slaves would have consisted of one-third of the population and would have walked with other people, been among other people. Uh, Typically what happens is you've gotten into debt and you sell your slave into slavery and basically the master would immediately pay off your debt and then you typically work it off with your master while also still getting a modest wage. And so because of that, 10 or 15 years, most people spend at most in slavery. And really, there are almost no slaves for life. All right, so it's very different than the uh, Anglo-British-American uh, system of slavery that we think about today. I know it's a, it's a terrible word. In fact, one commentator even made the argument that this kind of slavery was prefer- preferable to a blue-collar free man, simply because of the job security provided. I mean, you were there, you still got a wage, and you knew you had a job. Interesting. But, but so you have these people, even happy people, who are wondering, okay, now that I've been freed in Jesus Christ, should I keep this job? And what Paul says is this, don't worry about it. Remain. How can Paul say this? Because through Jesus Christ, every job can be done well to glorify Jesus, and every vocation has a boss and co-workers who need to see the gospel 
both lived out and spoken. But what about that perfect job that fulfills you in every way and satisfies you? Paul's not saying it's not out there. I don't want to make that claim. Paul's not saying it's not out there, but he is saying don't worry about it too much. In fact, hoping for it, putting your hope in it too much, it's going to create a problem, a serious problem. We're going to get to that in a moment. But there was a time in history when people forgot about this, the idea that, that every job can be done well to glorify Jesus and to love others. Being a priest, a bishop, or someone really important who probably donated a lot of money in a church was irrefutably better, infinitely superior than others and other jobs and other positions. Like you were born into thinking that. Then a man named Martin Luther rediscovered the main message of the Bible. You are rescued from eternal death and to Jesus by grace. It's a gift. And you, and you get it through trusting in him alone. Not by anything you do or can do in your life. And so now that everyone has access to God through faith, any job can be done to honor and glorify him. Any job. So Luther asserted that, that God called man to labor because God labors. Because man has access to God. He can see God. God labors. And not just that, but he labors at common occupations. Luther liked to say that God is the uh, tailor who makes the deer a coat that will last for a thousand years. It's kind of like that. And at first I thought, that's faulty. You can, but then I think about, you know, ski lodges and deer and those coats. They, 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 they're there for a long time. I know some of you are like, oh, animals, deer, what? But, I mean... <laughs> They last for a long time. That's my only point, all right? Uh, he is the shoemaker, God is, who provides the boots that the deer will not outlive. I love how he put that. I'll give you one more. He would say, God is the butler who sets out a feast for sparrows and spends more on them annually than the king of France. All right, Luther was a German, didn't like France, so he liked to take shots at them too. All right, he's basically saying like, look, God spends more money than even the king of France who pampers himself. Now find the parallel for your own job. Right? If you invest money for a living, think about it. God invests his spirit in people. Right? A deposit guaranteeing an everlasting return. If you're a teacher, meet the rabbi. And the list goes on. In other words, through your job, you can become, like glorifying him, you can become more like the God who has already been doing it on an infinitely grander scale. Isn't that awesome? Finally, I've got to address this point. Why does God do it this way? When, a, when God calls a man or a woman to himself, why might he choose remaining versus changing? Why? I mean, you kind of think, after all, a fresh start somewhere else, a fresh start doing something else would sort of support a fresh start spiritually, right? Thinking about that this week. And I think the key to answering this lies in Paul's final verses here on this matter of secondary calling. Start with me in verse 22, where Paul says, For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free was called as, as a slave of Christ. Now, is Paul, is this riddling? No, it's a, it is a profound statement. I want to walk us through it. First of all, perfect freedom is not self-determining authority. Now, I know most of us think that, like, Perfect freedom is us making choices, or choices becoming effective, and actually happening in all circumstances. That's perfect freedom. But not if there is one who both knows infinitely more than us and chooses the best for us every time. Right? We are of limited knowledge. We are finite people. 
So when we make decisions, we think we're making the best for ourselves, but because we're finite, we don't know that there's even something better out there. Something grander, something more good for us. So perfect freedom is actually being a slave of Christ who loves us perfectly, is always choosing for us, and knows more than we do. Everything about our lives. So, very profound. And this, here's Paul's example. He's basically saying, the one who has been accustomed to external imperfect authority imposed upon him or her now has perfect authority that brings freedom. You know that there is a God who is for you. All right, this authority isn't one who is um, imperfect, who sometimes abuses, who sometimes takes advantage. He is for you. So you can try great things. You have great freedom to try great things because you know that he is in control and loves you and wants to empower you to do them. Likewise, you have the one who has had all the luxuries of imperfect freedom given to him or her and now has perfect freedom through authority. Right? If you meet someone who has all the riches of the world but doesn't have Jesus, there comes a time where they ask these questions. What is it all for? Why do I have all these things? People with money come to these questions and they only find satisfactory answers when they realize there is someone there to direct all of that freedom to something and to someone greater than themselves. So what's so profound, Paul is saying that Jesus alone is exactly the what, the who, the where that people from every state of life need. So Paul then says in verse 23, you were bought at a price. All of this was bought for you. Do not become slaves of men. What does that mean? How, how do we become slaves of men? How do you enslave yourself? To buy into a false hope that the system of this world creates. You will be more free, more satisfied, more fulfilled under different social settings, in a different place, doing a different job. Right? And we know that our world screams this, doesn't it? In advertisements, come here. Chamber of Commerce commercial, I mean, uh, uh, movies. If you only do this, this will make you happy, right? Uh, and Facebook, I mean, I, I, I saw this week, I was looking on a news feed, someone was welcoming someone back that came in. They said, they said welcome home. All right, this is clearly an expat visiting somewhere. Welcome home. And then a family member responded, if only that was home, really, you know this is home. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, really? Like, this is what happens. The world tells us, no, home is over here. Home, it will be better here. It will be different here. You know that, right? And this is how the world enslaves us. God chooses remaining as the default over change because each change represents a marked shift or change in hope. So each time you change jobs, you change places, you change social settings, as part and parcel of the belief, now things will be better, then you shift your hope more and more and more. Each time you hope that change will change you, you reinforce your status as a slave. We started this morning with these questions. Where do you want me? What should I do with my life? With whom should I do it? But these really aren't the questions, are they? They're slightly off. For those of us with jobs and a church and a democratic land, more honestly, the questions are, where do you want me next? What should I do with my life next? With whom should I do it next? Friends, see that? These are the questions of misplaced hope. Always seeking what's next and then further enslaving ourselves to the world. 
Verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain, and this time Paul adds, with God. When you consider God's call, be sure to start at God's baseline, his default, which is remaining. You may feel like you're going nowhere, but there is God, your hope, who is our guaranteed next. The next place of refuge, the next labor of love, the next person who is called comforter. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I I just echo the prayer I mentioned earlier. I just pray that we would listen and respond to what your word says, not what we previously assumed it didn't say. Father, I pray for those of us who don't yet know Jesus. Help us hear your call to trust Jesus. That's the primary call in our lives. To know him, to love him, to treasure him, to find our hope in him. And out of that flow is our secondary calling, Lord. There's a where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing, who we're supposed to be doing it with. Hard questions, Lord. But so often I think we make, we, we make those decisions from a gut, spontaneously, where God says, through Paul, the first thing to do is remain. Try to glorify him and love him where you are, with what you're doing, with the people you're around. Help us do that. Help us listen and respond in Jesus' name. Amen.